So tonight we continue our study in Revelation in chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. In chapter 18, we saw that final destruction of what is termed the harlot or Babylon. It's basically the, the end of the world's system of Antichrist. It's the beast. It's the, the Antichrist, the devil. All of those things are destroyed. The final judgment of God has come. And he reigns supreme. Now, in chapter 19, we begin to see the saints of God as they celebrate in heaven, as they say, true are your judgments, O God. And now, tonight in verses 6 through 11, our attention is drawn to an event that the whole Bible has been anticipating from the beginning. And that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's notice this tonight, Revelation 19, verse 6 through 7, as we begin, says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So this is glorious, this, this praising. This, again, the, the first few lines talk about this voice of a great multitude. It's a roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder on top of each other. It's just, just unfathomable uh, what John is hearing here, because can you imagine what we're hearing is the, the multitudes, millions upon millions, I will say billions, of creatures made in heaven, the angels, the hosts of heaven, and humans glorified, all gathered in this multitude, crying out. I can't, we can't imagine it. I mean, the loudest crowd roar ever recorded, this is in the Guinness Book of World Records, by the way, was Arrowhead Stadium, 2014, a game between the Chiefs and the Patriots. Loudest roar ever recorded by humans in a stadium, 14, uh, no, I'm sorry, 142.2 decibels, which is louder than a jet taking jet engines uh, less than 100 yards from those. That's very deafening. So very amazing. But you think about that, that doesn't even begin to compare to what we're talking about here in Scripture. We're not talking about just 75,000 people. We're talking about billions of not just glorified humans, but beings we can't even comprehend made to glorify God, cherubim, seraphim, other, other beings made by God that, that we will glory in seeing, and, and they're made to bring him glory. Therefore, who knows how loud this can be? But, but this is what John's seeing, and it's, it's just something that all of us will look forward to, and we're going to be there. And I, and I guess I could preach like this and get us a little more excited because church, by the way, the local church, when we gather together, that's a little microcosm of what we're seeing here. It's like a preview the church on earth gathered together is the closest slice of heaven that we'll see this side of heaven. And so it's like a precursor. And, and the reason I'm saying that is when we're preaching God's truth and his glory is revealed to us here and we're seeing his glory here, we can't even get a holy grunt, much less a hearty amen or hallelujah. And yet what I'm saying is we as God's people are going to be around the throne and we're in this throng right here. This is us. And so let's at least pray about, Lord, let me be excited about your word. Let me be excited when I hear and see your glory, not to be shy about praising you. Now look at the reasons for the roar. 
two reasons that we see. First of all, the Lord God Almighty reigns, they said. They praised him. The roar was magnificent. What did they say? Because the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is total sovereignty, total power, and total justice and righteousness reigning, total goodness. Once and for all, a perfect utopia is what, is what they're praising here because the sovereign God fully reigns over all things. All, all, the, all through history, humans have tried to build their utopias, right? All through human history, we try to create a utopia. And history has shown that because of man's sin and man's depravity, that the very best attempts at our utopian cities and countries and kingdoms have deteriorated into tyrannical bloodshed. Uh, think of some of these. You know, Hitler started out, Germany, they started out with this goal of a utopia. And what did it end up as? A lot of bloodshed. The Quakers believed that they could bring some kind of a utopia into the world, some kind of a post-millennial reign, if you will. And yet, they disintegrated. It didn't happen. Why? Because this side of glorification, we will never have a glorified utopia, a perfect reign. There will never be perfect justice. And yet that's what is so glorious about heaven, and that's why the saints are magnifying God, is because now, once for all, there is no sin. There is no greed. There is no corruption. God rules in absolute supremacy and righteousness and goodness. And they're shouting. We're, we'll be shouting for joy. It's a very thought. I can't even imagine being in that, that, that presence of all goodness. <laughs> it's just this justice. But number two, the second reason there's a great roar is because of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. The Bible depicts the relationship between God and his people as a marriage relationship. All the way through the Bible, this is language used for God and his people. If we look back at Hosea chapter 2, 19 through 20, what does God say? He says, and I will betroth you to be, me, to be with me uh, forever. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So this is a engagement, if you will, a betrothal, this, this, this statement by God to his people. I will be faithful to you. You are mine and as we know, it is all God. He's the one speaking here in every instance. It's his steadfast love. It's his mercy. It's his faithfulness. It's his righteousness, his justice that will cause our relationship to last. We know that Israel, though, in this picture, always fails him in that relationship. And yet God still says, this is the relationship. It's a marriage between me and my people. Ephesians 5, 25, 27, Paul plays on the same theme when he says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a glorious picture, right? Christ is married to his church. That's us. That's what the church is. It's all of the saved through all the ages. What's this go on to say? Why did Christ give himself up for his bride? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy 
and without blemish. A beautiful bride presented to the Son. This is what we are. This is, what, this is the language of Scripture. God's people are the bride of Christ, the gift that the Father has given to his Son. And she is beautiful without blemish, it says. Now again, think about this. The first miracle that Jesus performed was, was, was where? Cana. Cana of Galilee. And what was that? It was a wedding. It was a wedding feast. And I don't think there's an accident with that. Jesus starts his ministry with this glorious celebration there in Cana, the wedding feast. And his entire ministry then was a preparation for a wedding. His entire ministry, he lived per perfectly for his bride, being her righteousness. That's what he was doing on earth. He was living out our perfection that we don't have. He was keeping the law for us to make us spotless and beautiful and unblemished. He did that for us. He was doing that for his bride. That was the joy set before him, right? Going toward the cross now. He takes our sin. He takes the blemishes. He takes all of the, 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 the trans transgressions against God, and he takes our hell in himself. He pays it in full. And then after this, and by the way, you know what a picture of that is? When Christ goes to the cross, he's paying our dowry. That's a, that's a pay. He's, he's purchasing his bride. He's doing what it takes to now have her. And then after he conquers all of his enemies here in Revelation, the wedding supper begins. So this is, again, the fulfillment of all of the Bible, is what we're seeing in Revelation, this marriage supper of the Lamb. This is, folks, this is our, we should all be looking for this. We have a great wedding that we're going to be attending. It's ours, and we're going to be there in the presence of our bridegroom, Christ. And it's just the beginning, by the way. These, these in the Bible, man, those wedding uh, you know, ceremonies, not so much the ceremony, the ceremony was not much. I mean, back then, the betrothal happened between usually parents would, would make deals with brides and grooms, and then a time would pass. I mean, the dowry, dowry, dowry whatever, dowry would be paid for. So, but then sometime months would pass, even years, before the actual wedding. But then on the wedding day, the, the bride would prepare herself as her groom came to get her and to take her back home up to a place where he prepared for her. And so what a glorious picture. And when he got there, and that, and that was pretty much the ceremony, was that here I am, I've come to get my bride, I take her back, then we celebrate. And that celebration would last a week or more, unlike some of our weddings, right? But that, that, that's the glorious picture of that Middle Eastern wedding to what we're seeing in the Bible is this. That's just us. That's a drop in the bucket. Folks, this marriage supper of the Lamb is eternal. It never ends. That feast never really ends. This is the inauguration into our eternity is what we're seeing here. And it never ends. The glory of Christ that we bask in never ends. William Henderson put it like this. In Christ, the bride was chosen from eternity. Throughout the Old Testament, the wedding was announced. Next, the song of God assumed, or I'm sorry, the Son of God, I should say, assumed our flesh and blood. The betrothal took place. The dowry was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns and it has come. The wedding supper of the Lamb. The fullest realization of all the promises of the gospel. So that's what I wanted to get at. This is what Hendrickson says. The marriage supper of the Lamb is, will be for us the fullest realization of all the gospel promises.
made to us. So, that, so, 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 we, so what are you worried about, right? This is why we read, we read the Bible as Christians. This is why we constantly meditate on Scripture. We realize that this world is temporary, and this is reality. This is our future. This truth is what helps us persevere through the pain of this life and be faithful while we're doing it. It's, it's, it's this. It's supernatural. It's out of this world. It's transcendent. It's reality versus this falseness that we're living in. The lies of this world. Folks, this world's temporary. Everything God's promising us in his word is eternal. And this is what he's prepared for us. But how can it be? I mean, how can this be, right? This, this picture of us being this spotless bride without blemish. Do you know yourself? I know myself. So how can it be? I mean, think about this, folks. How can we, who are not spotless and who are not without sin, ever be the bride of Christ? I mean, we've got polluted garments, Isaiah 64, 6. What's it say? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our unrighteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's who we are. How can we be the bride of Christ? How can we ever, you know, hope for this day when we're sitting at that marriage supper? And the answer is found in verse 8. Look at this, Revelation 19, 8. <laughs> it was granted to her. Now let's go back a minute. I want to go back and read again Revelation 19, 6 through 7. Look at this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. And look what it says. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for what? The marriage of the Lamb has come. And look, his bride has made herself ready. And in verse 8, how did she make herself ready? It was granted her. <laughs> It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. But all of this was granted to her. This is how, again, it comes right back to the theme of God's word as well, which is grace. All of this is by grace. Titus 3.5 sums up again what the Bible teaches about salvation, about how we are made righteous in the sight of God so that we will be his bride and we will be cleansed and pure. What does it say? He saved us. It was granted to us. <laughs> he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Not according to our sewing skills, making our own garments, and making our own dresses, and putting our bedazzled kits out there, bedazzling our clothes with rhinestones or whatever. No, we, we don't do this. It's granted to us. He saves us, not because of us, <laughs> but in spite of us, according to his mercy. That's glorious. I mean, the old hymn written in 1866 called The Church's One Foundation puts it like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life 
he died. That's our, that's our belief. That's our theology. That's our hope. It's him, our bridegroom, coming to us, making us spotless, making us white, making us glorious, a white gown, a, a precious bride, or a holy bride without blemish. Now look at this. There's some aspects here that we're going to touch real quick because it could be confusing. We see two aspects of our salvation. There are two aspects as we look at someone's salvation. There's a passive and an active part of salvation that we have to look at. And we see it right here. If you look at verse 7 of Revelation, what it said was this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So many Arminians like to jump on that. An Arminian, uh, uh, what's, what's that? It's not an, not an Armenian. Arminian, theological term. Uh, opposite of Calvinists, so just throw those things out there. But an Armenian would say, no, we do it ourselves. We make ourselves right by keeping the law, and we, we do good things, and, and we earn our own righteousness, and then God says we're worthy, and then he takes us because we've made ourselves spotless. That's kind of, that kind of theology. And when you read this, that's what they would use. See, it says right here in verse 7 that the bride has made herself ready. Again, some might think that that means, okay, we earn our salvation. But again, as I've already mentioned in verse 8, it reminds us that the dress has been granted to us by God. So the bride can only, and here's the picture, there is, there is the point to where we, we preach it every week. That doesn't mean that that bride who's been given that glorious dress by Christ, by his grace, can now go out and wallow in the mud and live any way she wants to dishonor and totally you know, embarrass her groom. No. Having been granted the spotless wedding dress of righteousness is what that is, right? The, the, the wedding dress of righteousness we, we've been granted by, by Christ, we are now to live as his holy people. So there's that tension. There's a passive part of salvation where we don't do anything. And that's receiving the dress, <laughs> receiving the grace. God saves us by his grace. But then the active part is the result of that salvation, the result of receiving that dress. I now live like the bride of Christ. I honor the righteousness that I've been given. And by his grace, I begin to put off the old stuff that's still there and put on the new righteousness to look more and more like the bride of Christ. And my whole life I'm doing this down here in this old flesh. That's what we're doing every day. We're looking in the mirror of God's word and we're seeing what Christ has done for us. And then we're still seeing in our flesh, man, that's, that's, that's not, that doesn't go with the dress. <laughs> that doesn't go with the righteousness. I need to put that off. And in this good act, this good deed, this law that God commands me, I need to put that on and start doing this. So this old habit, got to go. I got to replace it with a righteous habit. And, and that's how we begin to grow as the bride of Christ and look more and more like that spotless lamb of God until he finally glorifies us and takes us and presents us faultless. Ephesians 4.21 is basically what this is talking about. It says this, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Paul's talking to Christians and saying, here's how you learned Christ. Here's, how, here's what we preach to you. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self. So you've been taught that if you're in Christ, you are to now put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires 
and to, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, this is that life of a Christian. We rest in the grace of God that makes us holy. We can't do anything to, to earn it. It's his grace acting upon me. Like we said Sunday, it's a supernatural act that is done to me by God's grace. Once that happens, I will not want to live the way I used to live. My whole nature now is being changed, and I love the things I used to hate, and I begin to hate the things I used to love. That's what this is talking about. I begin to grow. So again, the passive and active parts, it's, and by the way, even the active part of our salvation, even when we obey Christ and we start doing the right thing, that's because of his grace. <laughs> it all starts with him coming to us and giving us his righteousness. So that's, that's where we trust, in the spirit. We don't walk by the flesh, we walk by the spirit. But now, notice the last part here of what we're looking at, verses 9 and 10, of this glorious praise service in heaven over the fact that now God is reigning. By the way, I meant to say this, God is reigning, that's what they praise, and they're singing hallelujah. The Lord God Almighty reigns. Now there's a sense that, that God is reigning He's been reigning all the time, and we understand that. You know, that doesn't mean that, that up until that moment in the future when God finally destroys the wicked one, that Satan's been reigning. No, it's not. God still reigns. This earth is still his. The world is still his. God has used everything throughout history, even the evil that he permitted to exist for ultimate good. So I want to say, I didn't want to miss that. I was supposed to understand this. God is reigning. He is on his throne even now. Even like Psalm chapter 2 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing and they plot against God? The kings gather and they plot against God and his people and his anointed. But what's the Bible say? God sits on his throne. That's what it says. The next verse, God sits on his throne and laughs. And he's still working everything out for his glory. So yes, he's always reigning. But what, what Revelation is talking about here is it is the final culmination and the realization of total righteousness in the universe because at this point all evil is vanquished forever that's what we're saying that's what we're experiencing in this future tense now having said that this plays right into the last point of our blessedness forever so it's been worth it right to get through this part of revelation 19 there have been some rough weeks I mean, judgment after judgment after judgment and death and carnage and the wrath of God. But now we see this glorious truth that there is joy and peace forevermore for those who are faithful to the king and through his righteousness are brought into that kingdom. Look at verses 9 through 10. And the angel said to me, write this. He had to get John's attention. I'm sure he did. John's like, wow. The angel says, hey, write this down. You're supposed to, be, supposed to be writing a book, man. Write this down. But I mean, John's just looking at this like, wow. The angel says, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that interesting? That's where he wants him to emphasize. He's saying, John, you need to write down what a privilege and a blessing it is for those who are even invited to this. Those who are actually going to be here. Blessed are they. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. 
Man, I mean, again, this is why we hold to the book. This is why we believe the Bible by faith. And yet God has told us in plain English, okay, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and now translated into English. But yes, these are my words. Literally, let's put it this way in our vernacular. God shows John all of this, says, how blessed are those who I've invited to this, and then says, you can take me at my word. My word is my bond. This is, this is my word, my promise. Then what happens? Then I fell down, <laughs> John says. Then I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. He's worshiping the angel because he's so out of his mind at this point, so, so amazed. He just hears this glorious news. He worships the first person that tells him it's an angel, worships this angel, bows down to it. And what's the angel say? You must not do that. It's very interesting that we see this. I think it's important that we understand this. There is, there is a seriousness about worshiping God and God alone. Second commandment, very plain. We're not to make any graven image. There's not to be anything else in our lives that we bow down to and hold up as being holy. God and God alone is holy. God and God alone is to be worshipped. Not his gifts, not the spectacular things about him, not even the gifts that we love our family, our children, as we look at our babies' faces and we begin to think, I, I, this is my world. No. That's, that can become worship. Nothing. Our jobs, our, our dreams, our successes, nothing can, can take that spot that we bow down to. Let us let this word of God be very sober to us. Let it come back whenever we begin to stray from worshiping the one true God and him alone. Let us hear these words. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't begin to put your trust in something else. Or be thankful to something else for you have. First and foremost, give God all the glory is what this angel is saying. You cannot worship me, saying, I, I am a fellow servant, he says, with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Isn't this interesting what this is telling us is that if we are in Christ, we humans, if we're in Christ, we are now fellow servants with the angels of heaven. And what is all of our purpose? It's to glorify God and him alone. How? Through the testimony of Jesus Christ. There it is. It, 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 it's all about Christ. And this fourth blessing, by the way, that we see in Revelation, is the fourth, fourth time that we see a beatitude, per se. This is like the fourth beatitude of Revelation. Remember the Matthew, the beatitudes in chapter 6, where Jesus said, blessed is the man. The first one in Revelation we saw was in Chapter 1, verse 3, when it said, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and keeps it. The second one we saw was in chapter 14, verse 3. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are you if you die in the Lord. And then in chapter 16, verse 5, it's, we see, Blessed is the one who stays awake. Be vigilant. Stay faithful in this world. And then finally, this one that we just saw in verse 9 of chapter 19. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, through faith in Christ and his perfect work for us, this is what this is reminding us of, folks. By putting, simply putting our faith in Christ, resting, falling upon his mercy, we have 
the most valuable invitation in the universe. Greater than the Oscars, the Emmys, Grammys, Nannies, whatever, Kennedys, Kennedy Awards, I don't care what it is, how prestigious, Nobel Peace Prize, I don't care. We have the most prestigious, glorious, powerful invitation in the, not just the world, the cosmos. We have a reserved seat at the marriage of God's son. And we're even the bride. <laughs> That's amazing. Nothing, nothing begins to trump that. Nothing begins to even compare with that. Now, now, again, we may not feel like royalty in this flesh. And that's, that's good. We shouldn't, by the way, because we still have sin and we should hate sin. So we should recognize that. We, we not, may not feel like it in our flesh, but if we're in Christ, we have a certified, guaranteed invitation to heaven's marriage table. And this is important. This, it, those words are important. They're even biblically driven words, certified, guaranteed. This certified guaranteed invitation means that it, it cannot be voided out. It cannot expire. <laughs> it's, it's guaranteed. Two, it's a double certified, by the way. It's, it's, it's double certified. The invitation that we have is doubly certified. First, by the word of God. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. And then he said... These are the true words of God. This is God's word. Certified. This invitation to the marriage supper that we have, it, it has been certified by the very word of God himself. I certify it. Now, right now, you have the security of knowing that your invitation is valid and you will pass through the gate when you show it. That's what he's saying. My word. You know, you've seen those movies, right? People trying to get in somewhere, whatever, and they're, and they're trying to cut the line of a club or whatever, and, and, or whatever. I, I, but, but they can't get in, but then somebody knows them that's like the, the head of the whole thing, and he just simply walks up and says, oh, there was me, I, I know them. That's what God's telling us. We have his validation to enter into his kingdom and sit at his table, certified, by his word. That's what John 3.36 means. When it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is a certified verse right there. That's not a, oh, I hope you have eternal life. Uh, I hope you do good enough to keep earning that salvation. No, it's done. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Period. I saw a guy today talking about, oh, is it possible for Christians to lose their salvation? And you know, anyway, they were just going back and forth. And, oh, so frustrating. And he said, oh, no, this one saved, always saved. It's impossible. It's not, it can't happen. No, you got to do good. You got to be blah, blah, blah. To which I simply say, holy hogwash to that, man. I mean, it's baloney. <clears throat> what are you talking about? The Bible is clear. Are you gonna, I'm not going to believe the word of a man or even a religious system over the very certifying word of God. God said, this is it. Whoever believes my son has eternal life. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Look at this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's whose word I'm going to take. I'm going to take. How do I know I'm going to heaven? Now, again, you ask my, my sister or my wife or my children. Well, they're going to doubt sometimes. Is dad really going to heaven? Man, are you kidding? This guy? And you ask me, I'm going to tell you the same thing. If it's up to me, no, I'm not going to heaven. But it's not up to me. <laughs> this is, again, this certified word of God. This is where I'm resting. This is my faith. My faith's not in me, it's in God. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow. It's a living hope. It's a now hope. It's living right now in my heart. I don't have to wait until I get to heaven to see if I'm going to get to heaven, <laughs> right? Most religions or most religious people, you talk to them, you going to heaven? I hope so. You think you go to heaven when you die? I sure hope so. I'm trying hard. I guess no, no, nobody will really know until we get there. <clears throat> False. What is the Bible, what is God saying here? We have a living hope, and that word hope, again, biblically, is not this I hope so. I hope it happens. I'm not sure. No, it means a a, a, a confident assurance. We have a living, confident assurance is what it's saying here. And that is because of Christ. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an, Here it is, listen. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So the invitation certified by God's word is it's 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 unfade it's, it's unfading it's undefiled it's imperishable and it's kept in heaven for us and look at this this is us now saved how who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time that's solid ironclad that's done god is telling us this is your certification my word i say it it's done this is christ he did this for you and again i know the naysayers but what if you do this i'm not saying because we have this truth that we live like little demons and do whatever we want this is what everybody gets mad about they're so afraid well if we believe god's grace is so powerful it's going to promote sin and paul's been dealing with this already in romans over and over and we know the truth is this Anybody who experiences the true grace of God will not continue in sin. We will want to obey our Father. We will want to keep His commands, and our life will be holy. It will be different. And anybody who says they've trusted Christ and gone to church for a few years of their lives and done a few Christianity, uh, Christianese, spoke Christianese and, and put on the Christian garb on the outside, and then they leave after so many years, everybody says, oh, they fell away. They lost their salvation. No, they never had salvation. That's what John tells us. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. Why? Because it's not us keeping us. It's God keeping us. And the truth is this. If I save myself, then I will be lost. <laughs> I like what they told Spurgeon one day. Somebody was walking along the street one day, and uh, this, this, this young guy was acting kind of out of hand. That they, they were looking at the street, street corner there, and he was doing some things that weren't nice. And 
the guy joking he said to Spurgeon, is that uh, one of your converts? He said, it must be one of my converts. It's not Christ's convert, right? So that's the point. If we try to humbly bring somebody to Christ or tell them, do what we say, or we try to bring ourselves to Christ, we will fail. We're, we're not believers. Only Christ makes believers out of people by his grace. And when he does, they're never the same. So that's the first thing. This is the first point. The reason I read all that is we're being guarded. You see that word? Those who are in Christ are being guarded by the power of God and by his words. And we will be revealed on the last day. Right there at that wedding. But number two, the second certification is by the very sealing of the Holy Spirit himself. And this is what Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tell us. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise and the glory of God. So, wow, I just love that. Is that not beautiful? It's so beautiful, I want to read it again. Just bear with me, we're kind of early still. Look at this. One more time, look at this. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed. We're sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So right there it makes it very plain. Who's the guarantee of my inheritance? It's not me. It's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it's the Spirit, not the flesh. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I don't know how much plainer God's word can be to us that if we are in Christ, we are secure by Christ. And we have this invitation. And that's what the angel is saying to John. He's saying, man, blessed are all of those who have been invited to the wedding feast. Wow, folks, where's our problems? We don't have any. <laughs> when we look at God's word again, it is the great prioritizer. It puts all of our priorities in order. And we can rejoice in the midst of anything. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the encouragement of where our faith rests. And we are relieved to know that it doesn't rest in us. It rests in one who cannot fail, whose promises are sure. And we are secure forevermore, guaranteed, double certified, that because of the righteousness of Christ and the mercy of God, we will be seated at the table in heaven for all eternity. And we give you, Father, all the praise for that. And we will do that for eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.